This morning we have a prayerful reading from Reverend Elizabeth Tarbox. Today we give thanks for the opportunities to love that present themselves in the turmoil of life. Where the light catches the tears in another's eyes, where hands are held and there are moments without words, let us be present then and alive to the possibility of changing. Let us seek to make another's well-being the object of our concern. Let us seek to be present to another's pain, to bathe another's wounds, hear another's sadness, celebrate another's success, and allow the other's story to change our own. Let us stand in the morning on damp grass, hear the syllables of birdsong, and fill up on the sweet air that rolls over oceans and continents. Let us look up at the stars and the planets that fill the night sky with majesty. Let us witness those bountiful blossoms of summer. And for all this, let us be grateful. Let us not defend ourselves against the discomfort of unruly emotion, nor seek to close down our hearts for fear a new love will come to shake our foundations. Let us instead be open to discovering a new way of seeing an old problem or appreciating the perfection of a seashell or the possibility of friendship. For in giving ourselves to what we do not understand, we receive life's blessings. And in taking care of another, we are cared for. So ends our reading. The door was closed, but I knocked anyway. This was a hospital room on one of the cardiac floors where I served as a chaplaincy intern. The roster I held in my hands gave me the patient's name, age, and religious affiliation. That's all. The patient hadn't requested a chaplain, but I was assigned to this floor to offer companionships to all the patients. So I knocked. I heard a man's voice call out a muffled, come in, so I went in. Hi, I said, my name is Joanna, I am one of the chaplains here. It's one of my joys to get to stop by and visit with the patients on this floor. How are you doing? The man inside was in his 60s, and I'll call him Michael. He introduced me to the two middle-aged women, women in the room with him as his daughters. Michael was cheerful, but looked a little guilty as he said, You know, I was raised Catholic, but I haven't believed in God in a long time. Religion isn't important to me. I, I'm sorry, no offense. Hey, I responded, You really don't need to apologize to me. Tell me about what is important to you. His family, 
Michael responded. He was in the hospital for a relatively minor procedure on his heart, but one that still had risks and that might force him to change his day-to-day life. Michael told me he wasn't afraid of dying, but he was worried that he wouldn't be able to keep up with his grandchildren anymore. I said that it sounded like while he wasn't afraid of losing his life in this procedure, he was afraid of losing the life he knew. What would it mean for him if he wasn't able to play with his grandchildren in the same way that he had before the procedure? He responded, I'm afraid it would mean I'd become an old fuddy-duddy, someone who wasn't fun to be around anymore. I'm afraid they won't want to keep hanging out with this old man. Oh, Pops, one of his daughters said, the kids are going to love you no matter what. There was silence for a few moments. Then Michael said quietly, You know, what I'm really afraid of losing is being able to run. I feel selfish saying it, but it's true. Running is like my church. I run every day, no matter what, and it's when I feel most at peace. I'm signed up to run this half marathon in a few weeks, and what if I can't do it? We talked for about 20 more minutes, a really sweet and moving conversation. As we wrapped up, I said, so often at the end of visits, I'll offer a prayer for the patient if they want it. It's totally fine if it's not your thing. Shall I offer a prayer today? I felt uncomfortable asking, since Michael had already said he wasn't into religion, but my chaplaincy supervisors encouraged us to give people the option, so Michael looked a little uncomfortable, too, shifting a little in his bed. Looking aside, he said, Well, oh, go for it, Pops, his daughter said. It can't hurt. Whatever you want, Michael, I said. Okay, sure. A prayer would be nice, he said, still not making eye contact. Okay, you got it, I said. I took a deep breath, closed my eyes, paused for a moment, then began. Holy One, mysterious source of compassion and healing, be with Michael as he undergoes this procedure. May his caregiver's hands be skilled and gentle, May he feel the love of his family holding him up like a buoy and help him to see that they love him for who he is, not for what he's able to do. Grant Michael patience in his healing and resilience as he adapts to the changes that may come. Guide his feet while he runs this race. And let us say, Amen. When I opened my eyes, I saw Michael looking deeply into my face with tears in his eyes. Thank you, he said, sounding choked up. 
You really saw me. Thank you. This moment has stuck with me in the years since I did that chaplaincy internship, not because I think I did anything exceptionally well as a chaplain, but because it was a moment that transformed my relationship with prayer. And because it was a transformative moment of prayer that didn't involve the word God. Here today in this beautiful theological diversity that's present in this room, like so many other rooms full of Unitarian Universalists, we range from proud theists to avowed atheists and everywhere in between. I think many of us Unitarian Universalists have a complicated relationship at best with prayer. Because we are rational beings, our first question about prayer is often, well, to whom are we praying? And that gets interesting. Some of us who believe in God may not believe in a personal God who hears and answers prayers. Some of us turn our rational minds to what our senses can tell us and prayer might come off as irrational or superstitious. Some of us have emotional baggage from carrying around other people's expectations of what prayer can or should be. When I started that summer-long hospital chaplaincy internship, prayer was one of the things I was most intimidated by. And let me tell you, when you are a chaplain in a hospital, you do a lot of prayer, and you do it on the spot. It seemed to me, and this is where I got uncomfortable, that prayer had a lot to do with God. And as a humanist, someone who cares most about how people treat each other and other beings, I'd always felt a little uneasy praying at least in front of other people. And here I was, walking into rooms of people who sometimes did believe very strongly in God and in God's power to answer prayers, and I was expected to go in there and pray for them? I felt like a bit of a fraud. What I experienced in my visit with Michael was that when it came time for us to pray, God was beside the point. In that moment, the addressee of the prayer didn't matter so much. Instead of starting out the prayer with the words, Holy One, I really could have started it with, To whom it may concern. The point was, prayer was a vehicle for human connection. Prayer allowed me to express my best wishes for Michael. Prayer allowed me to reflect back the things he'd shared with me in a way that showed that I'd heard him. Prayer allowed me to companion him on a journey that was his to take. 
Prayer can be an incredible spiritual practice and a powerful tool of social connection, regardless of whether we believe in God. UU minister Laurel Holman is a non-theist who spoke about her experience of learning to pray with her congregation. In her 2003 Berry Street lecture called A Language of Reverence, she remarked that every once in a while, someone would ask her who she thinks she's praying to. She would respond, I recall the good advice from 12-step programs, just take care of your side of the street. And that's what I do with prayer, Hallman says. I take care of my side of the street with my gratitude, amazement, praise, fear, anger, and hurt. And the side of the street that my congregation is on. I figure the other side of the street, God or not God or whatever, can take care of itself and we can save the theological discussions for later. It answers the question of who by saying that the question is not essential to this relational approach to prayer. As part of her developing prayer practice, Reverend Hallman began directing her prayers and congregational worship to God of many names and mystery beyond naming. Slowly, she began to pray for help and comfort, and wisdom, and strength. Slowly she began began to name individuals who needed their prayer and with whom they were celebrating. She gave thanks for new babies and grieved over lost loved ones, naming parents and siblings and friends who had died. Slowly, she began to pray about her congregants' inadequacy to face the pain of their days. Reverend Holman said that for her, this prayer is not a rational posit to a responding deity. It is not a posture of groveling. It is an expression of our yearning, our grief, and our gratitude. It had become an expression of her congregation as a whole. And prayer can be so many things. Prayer can be relational, like it was with Michael in that hospital room. Prayer can be a way of naming our deepest desires, fears, and hopes. Prayer can be a way of letting go of things to which we're clinging tightly. Prayer can be an act of humility, a call to awe and reverence, a reminder to practice gratitude. Another way to approach prayer is to think of liberal Christian writer Anne Lamott's distillation of the three prayers that humans say, help Thanks. Wow. That's prayer at its essence. 
I'm convinced, like Reverend Hallman was, that our congregations need a vocabulary of yearning, and that is prayer. We need an opportunity to name our relationship with life in relational words, in poetry, in metaphor. We need to pray. I want to circle back around to the G word, God. Because while it's true that one can have a perfectly full and meaningful prayer life without ever mentioning the word God, there's no avoiding the fact that if we're going to be in a time of prayer with other people, odds are the word God is going to show up. In our beautiful diversity, some of us will feel more comfortable than others praying using the word God. For those of us on the less comfortable to downright twitchy end of the God spectrum, I invite us not to shut the door. Let's keep our hearts open as we explore what we could mean when we say God. UU theologian Rebecca Parker says that the question of whether or not God exists doesn't have to be an intellectual exercise, but rather could be this existential question. Is there reason to trust that there is any help available? A spiritual practice of prayer, then, is an act of trust that help is available. At times, we call that help God. Reverend Kate Braystrup is another one of those writers I turn to for inspiration, guidance, and comfort. Reverend Braystrup is a Unitarian Universalist chaplain to the main warden service which is the agency that polices the state's roughly 17 million acres of wild land. She accompanies game wardens to accidents and drownings and on search and rescue operations in the Maine woods. Freistrup writes, Such a chaplain doesn't have a leisurely hour in which to explain God. The suffering is right there, and its urgency demands an immediate response. We don't give a lot of sermons out in the field or in the woods or in the streets. Instead, we are called upon to offer the spiritual equivalent of triage. We're asked to pray. In moments of crisis, that urgent sense of yearning fear, or hope can cut right through that mental red tape that we might put around prayer or God. Sometimes in those moments, we can't do anything but ask for help from the universe, from each other, from something we call God. But the rest of the time, those more leisurely times when our mind is free to play with theological puzzles, Like many of us, Reverend Braystrup had some issues using the G word. In her book, Beginner's Grace, Reverend Braystrup tells her God story. 
In my youth, I was an agnostic. Then I decided I'd go for broke and be an atheist. Later on, when I realized that neither of the A-words fit, I still tried to avoid using the word God. It carried so much patriarchal baggage, and the feminist alternative, goddess, sounded too much like stewardess or actress, a demeaning diminutive of a real word reserved for men. She eventually came back around to using the word God because saying the word God out loud always gave her a bracing little jolt of humility. She wrote, Until I no longer feel that jolt, I shall have to assume that I've still got ego moles to be whacked. And I, although I am glad to report that the moles, like their whacker, seem to be slowing down with age. They pop their grizzled heads up a little less often and with a tad less vigor than they once did. Reverend Braystrup offers a little game to play for those of us who have issues with the G word, especially if the word God only evokes an image of that cranky Caucasian senior citizen lounging on a cloud, occasionally bestirring himself to hurl a lightning bolt at some unsuspecting sinner. It is extremely difficult, she says, to pray to such an unhelpful deity as this. So here's the game. In your own head, fill in the blanks. Nothing matters more than or the character trait I value most is when you have filled in that blank See what happens when you address your prayers in that way. Is that a source from which you can trust that help will come? In the name of that which we hold dear, let us pray. May we hold each other in love, letting our prayers reflect back that love. May we take care of our side of the street, offering up our deepest yearnings and hope. May we keep the window open to reverence, awe, and gratitude. Our prayer concludes in the same way that Laurel Hallman ends hers. We pray in the names of all those known and unknown present and absent, remembered and forgotten. We pray in the names of all the helpers of humankind. So may it be. Amen. Mm.